Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 9, 1980, when I was 17. Life as a cosmetology student was smart and productive, but first loves never die easy. I resisted as long as I could, but Martha needed a place to live, and my apartment was the obvious choice. I didn't realize how much I had changed until I experienced the cramped and claustrophobic sensations of having her around. I began to notice subtle things about her that I did not like, such as... She preferred television to rock and roll, and she never wanted to go out on the town. Other than our toxic relationship, we didn't have much in common, and the magical mystique of our sex wasn't translating into the real world. She was a woman with demons who had no imagination when it came to exercising them. And because of that, I found her boring and cruel. I took a weekend trip up to Boston because I needed some perspective, otherwise known as space. And when I got home three days later, I found Martha in bed with two other women. She looked like a stupid loser whose antics I had grown numb to. But the sorrow that did register was a strange relief because it fueled my anger, which produced a strength. And in a fit of wrung out passion, I kicked her out of my apartment again. It was invigorating being free of the suffocating constraints of love, but I could not shake that stubborn pain of, of what, what used, used to be. To be. It cast me in its shadow as I sat alone in my now extremely large and vacant apartment. I put the needle on the record and took to heart the hard-bitten advice of Chrissy Hyde's Kinjol. It is time for you to stop all of your sobbing. All of your sobbing. One piece is your friend. She said, she said, you're alone with yourself, she said. On a calm summer's day, there's stars and trees, you're right. 
several months later, free to be me wasn't always best. My relationship with Martha finally ended where it had all began, in her parents' home in Jacksonville, Arkansas. In a brazen life lived without her, previously, I had gotten myself pregnant while tripping on acid. I did not have high hopes for the fetus or me as a mother. So in a desperate need of nurturing, I called Martha and asked her if she would take me to the clinic. I didn't know why I chose her, I just did. It seemed right at the time. I guess I needed an old familiar comfort, or maybe just my fate was drawing me into the final chapter. After the procedure, which cost $200 and left me nauseous, cramping, and filled with guilt, Martha invited me to recuperate at her parents' house. I accepted, and before I knew it, that wily Martha had us living in her childhood bedroom as a couple once again. Her parents were very kind and supportive and thrilled that I was going to beauty school. They believed in an education of any kind, even if it was cosmetology. While I studied the art of beauty, Martha, who was jobless, spent her days binge drinking, drugging, and beating the hell out of me. I was showing all the signs of an abused woman, and I went to school with black eyes and ridiculous excuses. I never came right out and told anyone that I had a girlfriend. I always made reference to my boyfriend. It was safer that way. But people would give me that downward, tilted side eye, and just shy on their lips was the accusation. We know you're queer. All my truths were hard to hide, and it had become exhausting. To be gay and abused under the bright white fluorescent lights of beauty school, I began to feel like my life had become a pathetic joke and no one wanted to hear the punchline. But it came anyway. I was sitting on a dining room chair with a stiff, upright posture in Martha's bedroom listening to the U2 album, October. The stark, industrial, wasteland sound of that album resonated with me. If I wasn't there yet, I was on my way. Martha was standing over me with her finger in my face, spewing degradation and calling me every foul name in the book. I sat there silent looking down at my lap, one ear to the stereo and one ear to Martha. I wondered if her parents were home. I hoped not, because this would be embarrassing. 
For their sake, I always tried to pretend that Martha and I had a good relationship. I felt bad for them. Not only was their only adopted daughter a lesbian, but God forbid she was also an alcoholic and an abuser. I don't know why it was, but when she called me a dog, which was mild compared to the other words she used, a switch went off inside my head. I finally looked up at her, my face as cold as stone, and with no words, just resolve, I took the needle off the record and went to the telephone. I called Rita, a friend from beauty school, and asked her to please come get me. Rita, a buxom blonde with a fiery personality, pulled up in her little red Corvette, and Martha didn't dare say a word to either one of us. The crazy temper of my bloodline was boiling up in my body, and Rita, although sexy, was not the kind of chick you messed with. We loaded up what we could of my belongings and drove off quite literally into the sunset. That was it. There was nothing left. Coincidentally, it was also the end of Sue B, who borrowed $1,000 from me and disappeared, and I never heard from her again. When I felt the cool breeze From the window on your bedroom sheets I wanted just to wake you But I'd never want to make you Sad or unhappy Fall, 1980, back to Stiff Station. Like a long-traveled homing pigeon with broken wings but a fighting spirit, I found my way back to Stiff Station. Joe Stewart, the housemate from Oak Street, who encouraged me to write poetry and be a better person, invited me to be her roommate as she needed one. Because I was 18, there was no pretense of her being a parental figure, although I did see the occasional twinge of disappointment creep over her face when I did something stupid, which was often. But because she herself had a crazy life with episodes of unbecoming behavior, she never said a word and finger-pointing is always a dangerous game. Joe's home was, for me, a refuge back into the womb of the heartwarming hippie vibe that had been so absent in my life with Martha. As much as I rebelled against the hippies, their aesthetic was my comfort, whether I liked it or not. I still had some money left from my inheritance, so in my new home, I became a dealer of my new favorite drug, Quaaludes, 
Everybody loved quaaludes, and everybody did quaaludes because they made you feel happy. And they made you want to have sex with whomever, whenever. If you could get your muscled, relaxed body to do so, Best of all, there was hardly any hangover, just the desire to wake up from the soft, soaked existence of a night before and start all over again. I was terrible at the business of drug dealing and gave most the pills away, which cost 300 for a hundred or maybe it was the other way around. I now had an entourage of ass-kissing drug addicts who were indeed the motliest of crew. Queers and dykes, drags and chicks, boys from the neighborhood, and the occasional redneck, also known as boys from the neighborhood. I took a quiet pride in bringing these warring factions together in Joe Stewart's brown bungalow, infiltrated with crunchy brown cockroaches who were in a constant scurry to accomplish more in a day than we ever could. To sometimes watch a redneck and a drag queen tickle each other's fancy and slip seductively into the land of peace and harmony was worth the hit on my financial well-being. It is no surprise to say that my foray into the quaalude trade quickly ate away at the little money I had left. It seemed like a fair trade at the time for a fleeting dance with popularity, and before the inevitable, no one loves you when you're down and out. December 9, 1980. A gaggle of girls and one boy, dressed from head to toe in white polyester, stood at their stations, cutting and curling locks of hair. Three seconds remaining. John Smith is on the line. And I don't care what's on the line, Howard. You have got to say what we know in the booth. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. First, there was a murmur then a buzz, and then everyone dropped their combs and gathered around the television. Stunned silence filled the salon while students and customers watched the forlorn newscaster relay the news. Good evening. The death of a man who sang and played the guitar overshadows the news from Poland around in Washington tonight. 
Former Beatle John Lennon, who was 40, was shot and killed last night outside his luxury apartment in New York. Several of the girls, including myself, started crying. No one could comprehend what it meant or why it had happened. But it was obvious that this was our JFK moment, the most hurtful and devastating crime of our generation. For all our lives, the Beatles were ubiquitous and we took them for granted. They were, and always would be, the grand masters of the hippie hip parade. They were as omnipresent as the Grateful Dead's iconic logo that seemed to be on the rear end of every vehicle. And they lived in almost every hippie household alongside Andy Warhol's banana, the book Be Here Now, and the dirty t-shirts that were emblazoned with the face of Cesar Chavez. They were the ringleaders of our defiant subculture. We were them, and they were us. But today, the murder of a beetle killed the innocent and idealistic notion that all we needed was love. <laughs>